friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I came here to bury Caesar, not to praise him. What? No, what's up, guys? Yo, I'll be starting each episode with that quote from Julius Caesar. That's tight. This week, this is episode four. We are on a roll, getting mad downloads. Thank you guys so much, so much Twitter love, so much Facebook love. Please do me a favor. Uh, This week, I have an assignment for you. This is your homework. Please tell five friends who might be into the podcast that exists, and please leave a comment or a review. Then, like I said, even if you hate it, just having that interaction on the iTunes or whatever app or site you listen to podcasts on would be super, super great. I want to give a shout out to this week. We got some new Patreon supporters. Shout out to Sage, Seth, and Lorian for their uh, donations. If In case you didn't know, I'm on Patreon and every few weeks I put out a new song. I'm currently in the middle of my Chronicles of Narnia EP and um, I'm doing one song every two weeks about each of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. So we started, of course, with The Magician's Nephew. Uh, tomorrow I'm dropping The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe song, and I'm doing all seven songs. So that EP is exclusively for Patreon. But enough about me. Let's talk about part two of this week's awesome guest, Schaefer the Dark Lord. Now, this week we kind of talk about our touring lives together and our philosophies about being on the road. He and I are going on the road with MC Frontalot and Mega Ran most of October. So come see us if you want to. We would love it. Nerdcoretour.com. And if you listen to the podcast, I have a co-word for you, okay? I want you to say hashtag stealing fire. If you say that to me at the merch booth, hashtag stealing fire, you'll get like a drawing or maybe I'll give you a free CD. I, I can't promise anything, but that's like our, our code. Tom Green did something similar on his podcast. So I stole that idea from him. But before we start the podcast this week, I wanted to announce at the end of of the show. Now, if you follow me on Twitter and Facebook, I kind of gave a uh, hint about this. At the end of the show, we have an amazing, exciting world premiere. And this is the world premiere of a hip hop, indie hip hop supergroup called the Department of Darkness. Ooh, I'll let that sink in. If you're driving, I hope you just didn't run off the road just now. Or if you're running, I hope you didn't fall over. You know, some people jog while they listen to the podcast. The Department of Darkness. Now, this group consists of Vince Vandal, who uh, did a remix of one of my songs a, a while ago, my song with Adam Warrock, Vince Vandal and Schaefer the Dark Lord. Their debut self-titled album will drop on Bandcamp Monday, October 1st, and then it's going to hit iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, whatever, right after, and a vinyl 12-inch is coming out by the end of the year. This song is called World on Fire, and... It's about, well, it's it's based, it's inspired by Far Cry 5. Some of you might have played this game. And basically, it's the story of this religious zealot who gets all these people together and creates kind of this cult in the wilderness. And so in the song, Schaefer plays like the crazed, and I'm getting chills, dog, just talking about it. He plays the crazed leader, and he's, and this hook is like an old religious gospel spiritual that they turn into the chorus of the song, which is like, some of their best work. He's explaining why he started the cult. And I talk about why I joined his cult. And I'm an English teacher who is loses his tenure because he teaches Huck Finn and one of the millennial students doesn't appreciate the language in Huck Finn. And, uh, you know, that book has had some, you know, problematic responses. And I think 
teachers can lose, you know, professors sometimes lose their position when they say something controversial. So it's kind of the story of this English professor who gets washed up in this cult and their lives together. So it's just like, it's a really cool song. It's like the bet, my favorite collab I've done in a very long time. So October 1st, peep the department of darkness and, uh, We'll talk more about that later, probably. But this is part two of my interview with Schaefer, the Dark Lord. Stay to the end because you're going to hear this brand new song, which you literally can't hear anyone anywhere else except on the MC Lars podcast. Okay, so without much further ado, let's cue the intro music and let's get chatting with Schaefer, the Dark Lord. So speaking of your origins and speaking of um, people who start out good and become evil, then become good again, um, <laughs> what was like, you grew up in, in Iowa? Yeah, rural Iowa. And what was that like? Like, what was it, what was the town like? And what was your childhood like? Uh, it was like, it was like Mayberry. It really was. It was a town of 1800 people, uh, farming community, um, everybody who lived in that town, they either lived on a farm or their family had a farm, uh, except for me. Um, it, a very small town. Everybody knows everybody, no stoplights, like maybe oh, wow. like very Andy Griffith. It was very, like McDonald's or any- no, 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 no. The closest wow. McDonald's was 20 miles away. And as a kid, you know, going with my mom to that town 20 miles away, that was only five, 5,000 people. That was wow. like going to the city as a yeah. little kid because they had a McDonald's and they had a Kmart. Like yeah. they had things that we didn't have there. We had yeah. these, you know, like little mom and pop shops and, and there would be tractors driving on main street, our main street, which was, you know, two blocks long. Yeah. Uh, so I realized very early that like something terrible had happened <laughs> that, that, that the cosmos had made a terrible mistake and that I was, you know, you hear, I, I've heard the expression over the years, people saying, Oh, I was born too late. I should have been, I would have been so much better in the forties or the fifties. That was a generation that I, or a, a time that I recognize that, that I identify with aesthetically. And I, I just always felt I was born in the wrong place. I yeah. knew, I knew when I was a little kid, I, I mean, even before I got to, you know, facing like the bullying of high school, even just as a little kid, all I knew was that I am one day I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to a city and I'm going to do things. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to do stuff. So I grew up this little weirdo shut in kid who wasn't like involved in sports and didn't know anything about farming or or the outdoors and didn't like camping. And I liked reading and I was, you know, became a movie buff and and Mm. I was like this gifted nerdy kid who was like smaller than all my classmates. It's, it's just a miracle that I survived. Cause I was, I was such, I just stuck out like such a sore thumb there. And were, were you there all the way through high school? All the way through high school. Yeah. Wow. And what, how big was your graduating class? Uh, I think it was 55 people. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so was that where you kind of like discovered, um, uh, Twin Peaks and David Lynch and sure stuff? Twin Peaks. Yeah. I watched Twin Peaks when it aired on television with my mom. Um, like in high school, I, I saw all of it and just absolutely loved it. So were these flat, there were these flashes of like things in the mainstream that were like these genius kind of outliers creating content or creating art. Right. And, right. And that was, and do you, do you have uh, early memories of hip hop from that period? I have a very specific one, oh, the, like the it. kind that is so, that is so specific that if I were ever in a position where some uh, there were to be like a biopic made about my life, this is the kind of thing that would start that would play before the credits as a flashback in a sepia <laughs> tone. It's so, it's so distinct. Um, it's 1986. Okay, 
And oh, cable had just made it to my small town like a couple years before. Right. Um, and MTV was, MTV was new. I was, maybe it was actually more like 85. Uh, MTV hadn't even been on the air very long. We'd only had it for a couple of years. And I was obsessed. I was just watch MTV, just watch music videos all day long. And at that time, it was 20 videos that would just repeat all day. And I'd just watch them all day long. Yeah. I had this moment where I was watching uh, MTV and I'd been like in another room and I came in and there was one of the VJs was making this announcement that they were going to have a world premiere video, new video from the Beastie Boys. And at, at this point I'd seen like, you know, Fight for Your Right to Party had already been on the air and I'd seen it and thought it was great. But this was the world premiere of their second single, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Mm. The one where they're like, you know, they're like getting kicked out of a club and they're trying to convince the manager that they're the band and they like have a record and he's like, what is this? And they're like in wigs and they have electric guitars and they're on yeah. stage and there's a guy playing a guitar in a, like a suit of armor. So anyway, this music video plays and I walked into the, into the living room as I, I, I remember, I can see myself in this room. I walk in and these are, they're announcing that there's another music video from this group, the Beastie Boys. That first one, Right for your right, never really felt like a rap song. It felt like a rock and roll song. Sure, yeah. No sleep till Brooklyn starts playing. I stand there, just, just motionless, just frozen in space. And I watch this whole thing, like slack-jawed, silently, by myself. And I, I think I was the only one home. And I just stared at this whole thing. These goofy white guys with electric guitars and all of these dumb jokes and, like, suits of armor. And there's, like, an amp exploding. And they're rapping. <laughs> and they're, they're really tough. And it's really they're all funny and they're all having so much fun and like just a part of my brain went online like uh, something changed there was my life before that moment right. and then after right and, right, and right. it just it just never stopped after that so i feel like yeah i i of course you know small town early mid 80s like i hadn't been exposed to any you know hip-hop unless it had been on mtv sure and at that point there hadn't been a lot this is before yo mtv raps this is before fresh prince and, and jazzy jeff like uh, most kids of that era, that was that was that was a moment when, when MTV started playing those early Def Jam artists. Yeah. Um, then did what? You went out and bought License to Ill, or yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, or I, re I recorded a cassette copy uh, from my friend Jake Laughlin, and then <laughs> shout uh, out to Jake. Yeah, played it until it broke, and then <laughs> bought the copy of it, and probably played that one until it broke. So you could probably recite that record pretty much. Oh yeah, I could yeah. probably all of their records. That's like, tight. They, I, they, that definitely made me aware of hip hop and made me want to just know as much of it as I could. And it was, you know, really difficult then. So I had to wait for you what to search for it. Yeah. There wasn't radio. There wasn't hip hop radio in rural Iowa. And there wasn't uh, like our local grocery store wasn't getting hip hop magazines and there wasn't, there was no access to That's it. interesting. So it was this huge mainstream moment that like hit, hit your world. And then you went out and saw it and, de and decided to become a student really of the culture, huh? Yeah, kind of. I was just, I, 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 I just wanted as much of it as I could get. What was, so after BC Boys, what was next for you? Um, well, and then Run DMC. Uh -huh. um, I remember there was a, a really important moment was getting uh, Slick Rick's first record at, yeah. at, at a, um, one of those, I don't remember what they were called now, but one of those record stores they would have in the malls. Oh yeah. I got one of those and you'd buy like a cassette tape and it was in like this long plastic case so yeah. they wouldn't rip it off. Yeah. Uh, getting that one. And then that blew my mind. How'd you discover him? Um, I, I, it was seriously, there was a, a tiny little section called rap yeah. and, uh, he was on the cover and had an eye patch on. And I was like, that looks cool. Yeah. His name's Slick Rick. It rhymes. <laughs> he looks like 
This looks all right. This guy's like, he's, it, it, it started immediately responding to the things that I ended up using later. I was like, this guy is wearing a costume and yeah. he looks right. That's and, 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 he, and he looks, there's something interesting about this and, and a storyteller. Yeah. But, but then I didn't know that until I got right. home and started listening. So you to hadn't it. heard you, you just, the image enough sold you on. Uh-huh. And, um, when did you find, did you start to find you had other friends who liked hip hop too? Or yeah, I had a, like a couple other classmates, but they were still, you know, they were only, they had as much access as I did. So we would talk about the videos that we would see. Um, I remember a big moment being, it, w- it would have been a couple of years later, but seeing again before Yo MTV raps, but just really late at night, they were kind of like playing weird stuff. And I saw the video for cool Modi's wild, wild west. Oh yeah. That was like a big moment too. I remember yeah. having to call my friend, you know, the next day and being like, did you see this? Um, and he hadn't, but I had like a little Radio Shack tape recorder and that I would just the audio? take the audio off the yeah. TV. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like what, what was your first rhyme you wrote? I guess. When did you start writing lyrics? Um, you know, I think probably in sixth or seventh grade, there was a writing assignment for an English class and I wrote a song about, uh, or I, I wrote a poem. We were just supposed to write poems, but I wrote a poem about Halloween, about going trick or treating, and uh, like my town being taken over by monsters. They're like all the monsters from horror movies. Um, surely a little <laughs> bit influenced. That. I feel like yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like before that, I can't remember if that seven inch of uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince's um, Nightmare on My Street. I can't remember if that was before or after. I feel like my thing came after and it was kind of influenced by Uh that. But yeah, so I wrote this thing and it was, but you know, I wrote it out in four bar stanzas and there was, for the most part, pretty consistent like meter and rhythm throughout the whole thing. I wrote it intending it to be like a Run DMC song and, uh, and then read it in front of the class and I got no Oh yeah, it was good. Yeah, it yeah. was really, it was good work. That was like the first thing that was really a rhyme. And I know that when I was reading it, I was like kind of nodding my head because yeah. in my head there was a drum beat, but do you remember it? No. Yeah. I, I, all I remember is like the last lines. Like I go and I have this terrible Halloween and at the end I'm like, uh, tom- and at the end it's, it's like, yeah. And that then, gosh, I don't even remember the, the premise of it now because at the end it says that Halloween is the next day. But anyway, maybe it was a dream which means I totally ripped it off from the Fresh Prince. <laughs> uh, but it was like the last line is, uh, tomorrow's Halloween for treats will all roam. Tomorrow's Halloween, I think I'll stay home. Because I was too scared. Because That's great, man. Yeah. That's cool. But that was like, yeah, sixth or seventh grade. And that was the fir- that would have been the first thing that I wrote as a, be considered a rhyme. So, all right. So we talked a little about your exposure to hip hop. We talked a little about your transition um, from metal and punk into rap. I want to talk about then... Like, so we did the, we did the middle, your early years. And I want to talk about like how, how, what was your exposure then to nerdcore as a genre? And like, what was it like when you first started doing these long tours? Cause I know like for, uh, you're one of the original guys and you've definitely toured a lot. <coughs> like, what was that like? When did you first hear that it was a thing? And when did people start associating you with front of lot and Chris and all those guys? Um, I had... I'd heard Chris's stuff because somebody had, you know, recommended it, you know, years before, but I hadn't heard of nerdcore as a genre. Um, after I moved to New York and I was then in a suit and doing solo, solo stuff, my old friend from Iowa, Cool Z, and I started uh, doing tours around the country. And we were doing it from a 
a very punk rock DIY aspect. You like booked booked them yourselves. And booked stuff? them ourselves by like we were like mailing press kits to the clubs. That's like, awesome. Sometimes we could contact people by email, but we were still like putting together like CDRs and sending them in the mail yeah. and then calling them on Tuesday between three and four p.m., which was when the Booker was in or whatever, oh and gosh. doing that that kind of crap. Yeah, but we were doing it like the way that my bands had booked tours because that's all that I had known how to do. You get like a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll's Book Your Own Life. And then you just, these are the clubs. These are the contact people and all ages venues and whatever. So we were going out there and we were booking these like three or four week tours to nobody, playing to nobody, making no money. But in our head, we were like, well, this is how you do it. You go and then you come back in a couple months and then maybe that one person who was there last time will bring two people. Sure. Like this is before like really using the internet to build yeah. an audience. So we were going out there like kind of hard. And that kind of black flag model. Yeah. Where you just, you and you have to carve out the routing yourself with the relationships. Yep. And just playing on whatever bill they would squeeze us onto. How old were you at this point? Um, mm-hmm. Early 30s. Like I was probably like, probably around 30 is when I think Coolsy and I were starting to do these tours. Okay. So it's getting kind of a late start on it. Um, uh, That's amazing that you had that much belief in yourselves and 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 uh, yeah, like put in the work. Yeah, I started like I, you know, once I started getting a little bit of attention from my uh, MySpace page or whatever, I started feeling like I could, I could maybe do this. I could maybe yeah. get an audience. I could maybe connect with some people. So we just started doing it the only way we knew how, which was this going at it slowly and going back to Indianapolis six months later and hoping that we had 10 people. Sure, sure. And that eventually it's going to kind of pay off. Um, During this time, um, uh, we had done that show Mm -hmm. in Boston. You and I had. Yeah, yeah, you and I and and, and Damien had done that show and it was was amazing. Was Optimus Rhyme on the show or not? No. Okay. No. They joined that tour later, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, I never, I never got to perform with or meet Optimus Rhyme. Wow. Yeah. Well, they should reunite. Familiar with their stuff, um, but never met him. Wow. Um, so I, in the following year, 2007, um, I think because of that experience, uh, Damien had done one of his first tours, probably right before, right after they had made that documentary. So mm-hmm. it was one of his early ones. And mm-hmm. he brought me along as a support act because we'd gotten along with that show. Oh, Wow. So doing that tour, I met some nerdcore people along the way, like met MC Hawking. Um, How long was that tour, you think? Um, I don't know, maybe three weeks. It, it made it from Pretty long. It made it from New York to California. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, like there were some there were audiences along the way because he'd had this kind of he early on knew how to build this internet buzz and people knew about him. So people were coming to the shows and they were all excited and I was getting a lot of great feedback. Uh, and then it was basically the next year was that first Nerdpalooza when it was like in a restaurant in Orlando. Wow. And somebody from that had contacted me and said, hey, we'd like you to come be a part of this. It's a nerdcore hip hop show. And I'm like, well, I'm not nerdcore hip hop. My songs are about Satan and having <laughs> sex with clones of myself and cats. Like I don't really rap like, yeah, about exactly. computers and video games. Yeah. And they're like, you're, you're one of us. And I was like, is it is it because I'm white and I got glasses? <laughs> <laughs> is that really what it is? Uh, no, but I realized, yeah, there's something inherently nerdy about the, the passion I put into everything that I've done. And that even though in my head I was like, I don't rap about Tetris, uh, I'm still, still a big nerd. So they invited me down to that thing. Uh, and who else was there? Because I don't know if I was, I don't think I was at the first you one. You weren't, you weren't at that one. But I, that's where I met Raheem. Ah. Um, that's where I met Zealous One. 
that's where I met Whitey. Like I met a lot of people that day. 2007? Oh, 2008. And was it, okay, so was that a rest, like a restaurant? Yeah. And, and um, Chozo put that together? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, yeah, he was, he was involved in that. Yeah. So Chozo, for those of you, a lot of you probably know who he is, but he's a, a promoter from Orlando who um, was one of the people who helped start the Nerdapalooza. And yeah. then how many of the, before the festival ended, how many of those did you play? Um, I played it back? every year from 2008 through the last one, which was 2013. Consecutively? Every year, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What were some of your favorite years playing that? Uh, they were all so much fun. Uh, yeah. 2012 was my favorite. Yeah. That was definitely my favorite. That's the one where they split it up into two. Instead of having it in, like, a convention center or a, a, a hotel, they had it in... In the Beecham and... The, the Beecham and the Social. Ah. Uh, and that year was amazing. And was... Did... Um, I think I I think I was there just, like, as a fan that year. Oh, I, I played Chozo's After Party. Oh, yeah. 2012. Right. And um, I remember the Proto Men played. Yeah. And I'd never seen them. I was like, wow. And I think the interesting thing about that festival is, like, speaking of genres coming together... It, it kind of became more of a rock festival later in the year. So. Yeah, there was a lot more. There became more and more um, video game music. Yeah. That became a thing. There were, there were definitely more bands. And it was a lot of, like, video game-inspired music, which is fine. But there, was, there became fewer and fewer hip-hop acts each year. Did you ever play PAX? No, I've never played PAX. But not yet, at least. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so. Oh, and I forgot. Actually, to back yeah. up, wait, one thing. Yeah. Uh, I forgot that there, there was a step before the Frontal Lot Tour and... Um, and the first Nerdapalooza. And that was the Rhyme Torrance message board. Oh. That was how I became involved in Nerdcore, or how I became aware of Nerdcore as a genre. That sometime after that 2006 show, TT and the Bears, and sometime before I went on tour with Front A Lot in fall of 2007, you were up I, there. I like had found my name like on an online search um, be- because there was this, this group called Rhyme Torrance, which is like the early organization of nerdcore where people were sharing their music online and and meeting one another where i got listed on something because somebody had seen one of these shows that i did with cool c where there was you know 10 people there and was like oh i saw this guy shape of the dark lord he's he's part of it and, and i remember kind of showing up being like oh people are talking about me somewhere uh, and then i was like oh it's nerd rap that's not what i do that was how it happened wait it was a forum or were they uploaded your mp3s no it was a forum they were just talking about it like ah. they mentioned it but then i like i signed up and i i joined and then i was like able to share some music and i did like one of their early compilations but then oh. i was like that was the first time i kind of found community i was just i had like kind of crafted myself as an outsider to like an, a metal and punk rock audience. And yeah. now there were a bunch of people saying like no you're a nerd rapper you're part of this nerd rap, rap it's, crew. it's like the uh it's like the, was the Sarlacc pit. You can't escape it. It pulls you down into it. Yeah. They just, they, they basically said like, hey, you, we know who you are. You're one of us. And I was like, no, I'm not. And they're like, yes, you are. And we're like, and they're like, and even, no matter how much you say, no, you're not. They're like, well, if you accept it, we'll have people care about you. You'll make money. Yeah. We'll come see you. And it's going to be a small group, but it's going to be a loyal audience. Yeah. I did the thing too. Like I got so excited at first because I was like, there's this whole the secret community and they, they know about what I do and they're, they're excited about what I do. So I, I wrote a couple of really pandery songs. Sure. Cause as, I was as like, we all did. Yeah. I was <laughs> like these nerd, this nerd rap scene likes me. So here's a song with a whole bunch of nerd references. So did they re- react well to their, yeah, those songs, sure. Those songs uh, were, were really well liked, but I only did that for a little while. And I guess, I mean, I, I know there's still elements in my act that are really nerdy and there are references at times, but that was, the stuff that I did that was the most 
shamelessly pandering of saying like, here's a song about why I love nerdy women. Here's a whole bunch of references, things, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, like, yeah. Where I was just straight up saying, thanks for inviting me to the party. Is there anything I can bring? Yeah, sure. You have that song where you, this is not quite related, but where you're like giving props to the sound man. Yeah. It's yeah. like a similar thing. You always been very gracious. Like you, like, like that's another example. You're yeah. A great guest. <laughs> that was, that was kind of manipulative. I used to do that. I wrote that song just as a thing to do to sound checks. So to get a sound guy on my side. So then that he or she yeah. would make the They'd sound. They'd be like, right? Oh my God, somebody wrote a song about we did with all the references. Cause I had been a sound guy before. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, these are all the things that you have to put up with. And then, you know, they'd give me a fist bump after sound check. And, and then like, you don't play I'm it. Set. <laughs> yeah. I don't do it for the show. No, but, <laughs> um, when, so, okay, so there are all these, the thing that's interesting to me is there are all these tangential indie rap and underground movements that kind of were nerdcore adjacent, but never like were part, like considered part of that scene. And like some of it, like Grand Buffet, you remember mm -hmm. them? Oh yeah. I did a show with, before, before I knew nerdcore, I did a show, like one of the first big shows I got booked on in San Francisco as a solo act was with Grand Buffet. They were touring and I got were they to, headlining. They were headlining and I was their local opener. Oh, that's awesome. I, I can't I, believe I wasn't at that show. I, I loved it. They were, they were, I don't remember which um, record they were touring for, but it was the one with candy bars on it. So sparkle classic. Yes. So wait, so tell the, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about grand buffet for some of the people who might not be hip to them. Uh, they're, they're definitely a, they're this uh, two man indie rap group from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And they were absolutely like proto nerdcore. And, and if, totally. if they stopped making music, then the nerdcore audience could just say, yes, these guys were nerdcore because they're not here to defend that now. Uh, they kind of slowed down, I guess, recently. Yeah. 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 Um, and I stayed in con contact with from Fwa because it had been such a great show. And I, I, I became a fan. Like I got all yeah. the music at the show and I kept listening to him and I loved him. And I was like, I want to play with you again, but I never did again. I only got that one show with them. Wow. Uh, years later, I was on a delayed flight and I ran into him in a restaurant bar and got to hang out with him. For Just a randomly? Yeah. And they were on, they were Tory? Yeah. That's cool. Um, what about, did you ever cross paths with any of the Anticon collective? Uh, no. Um, I know, um, I listened to a lot of that stuff, but yeah. I, I didn't really like personally know any of them. Yeah. yeah, but they were all coming up in the Bay in the similar era. Isn't, isn't that like, that whole crew that like, spawned the genre name backpack rap Is basically that? that's them yeah and they were kind of like they were competitive with lp and comp and company flow and def jux and yeah um yeah like sage francis and a lot of that stuff they helped launch that stuff i loved a lot of that stuff and i just i never had any connection to them have you ever met sage no do you listen to him yeah yeah i haven't in a long time but i i had like a really pretty heavily concentrated Sage Francis period. Yeah. As just, we all did. Yeah. I think that probably around your Aesop rock period. Oh yeah. 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 Aesop rock, uh, company flow, cannibal ox. <laughs> oh, I played with cannibal ox, Yo. but not, uh, not, um, as me. I played with them in one of my rock bands. Wow. I played, uh, played a show with cannibal ox at, when I was drumming in a rock band. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. In, in the Bay or here in the Bay. Yeah. That's cool, man. So what, like, these days, what are some things you've learned that have helped you? First of all, like you're, you're one of the most prolific, one of my most prolific friends and like your quality is all super high. And like, it's like, it really inspires me to hang out with you and listen to your new records because it's like, sometimes, you know, you see artists in the fire kind of goes out and I've never seen that with you. And I don't ever imagine seeing that. And like, what are some things you've learned like as an artist? And also I noticed you're really good with your business. Like you always... Every project you do, you, you, you do it effectively. And like, what have you learned 
since then and coming out of nerdcore and growing beyond it but like having your you know your your start in there i guess as a touring artist um i feel you know i really feel that I don't think that, I think that my, the weakest part of, of what I do is I don't think I'm very good at business. <laughs> uh, and I feel that the, the things that I have learned about being, uh, about being the most effective in the business end of this are, are things that I've picked up from you and, and Raheem mm-hmm. and Damien, like that, that, that I've kind of looked to you guys for, for sort of cues on this because I've never, that's always been kind of my my weakest, my weakest part. Like, I don't know. I just, um, I've, there's still this part of me that's just like, man, I just want to make music. But yeah, you, you, people, blah, you yeah. do it here. You record on your own. You make a lot of your own beats. Like your videos are all really well produced. And I don't know. I feel like I honestly learned from you a lot and how you kind of like, my method has always been like, do a crowdfunding, put, raise a bunch of money, put a bunch of money into like the best people I can get and and no disrespect to them. Like, I think all the people I've hired have done great, but like, I think there are more economic ways to do stuff that's just as good. Yeah. I, um, I do all of my, I, as a way to both save money and to, um, maintain some, some quality control. I do all of my own vocal recording at home. I, I built my own kind of makeshift vocal isolation booth so that I can edit, so I can record all of my vocals at home and, edit all of them and prepare them for mixing here without having to pay for studio time. That saves a lot of money. That yeah. way I'm only, then once I prep out tracks into stems, I'm only paying somebody to mix. That That's saved me a lot of money. And was that always kind of your approach or did you ever sit down and like rent studio time? Oh, I, I rented studio time and I yeah. spent my time like kind of leaning over the shoulder of, of somebody being like, yeah, that, that take was good. And, and me saying like, I'd like to kind of do a few and hear them back to back uh-huh. and they'd, you know, be resentful. But then at the same time, they wouldn't be because I'm just adding time onto this project and spending more money. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they engineers don't really like it when you stand over their shoulders and you're like, all right, we're going to take a couple of words from this take and we're going to put them into that take. Um, that didn't, that never flew very well. They, <laughs> Cause they're always like, either like they have their own creative vision or they're like, it's okay. It sounds fine. Yeah. They don't want somebody to come in to be like, so you're, oh, you're an armchair amateur audio engineer and you're going to come into my studio that you just hired to tell me how to do this and backseat drive. The yeah, session. exactly. I would, I was such a backseat driver. Um, and I, I feel like both in saving money, just having the ability to record and edit and comp my own vocal tracks at home has given me time to like take time and explore, you know, different recording techniques and different strategies for recording songs. Like I used to go in and be like, I'm not going to record a song until I have three finished verses and two hooks and like it's going to be finished written beginning to end that i've practiced and it's going to be done and i'm going to record it really well that first time and that's it and i don't do that anymore i i demo the songs as i'm Uh, writing them i will if i have like a new song in mind and i write a hook i will record that one hook and bounce it down and listen to it a few times and i'll go back and re-record the hook and i'll do that verse to verse and i'll get the whole thing tracked out and then i'll go back and now now i've been able to do it a bunch of times and listen to it i know what part works which parts work and i can record the final version of the vocals that now don't sound like i'm reading it off a page but yeah. it sounds like i know it and i feel it and i believe it so you kind of you, you take like a day or two and let it breathe the demos breathe yeah yeah, yeah that's um, i spend a lot of time recording stuff i the last few records i've put out any song that you hear on any of them will represent basically the third pass at vocals that's cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll record one sloppy. I won't set up the booth. I'll just do it in the room and yeah. demo it. And then as I'm like kind of making notes and going back and doing rewrites, then I'll go into the booth and I'll record them verse by verse and, and like 
make kind of a rough mix of that and listen to it. But yeah, it's once it's all done, then I go and I do like, this is the day. And then I'll need like four hours to set aside. Like, this is the day I record final vocals for this track. So you do four hours on one song? Uh, I have. Yeah. <laughs> do you comp them or yeah. do you do, do, yeah. So. I'll, I'll do multiple takes of each of each line, line by line, and then I will take the best takes. And so Damien, I guess, is like that too. I kind of learned that from Damien yeah, from working yeah. with him. I remember the first time I recorded a song with Damien, I left there exhausted and irritated. Because I'm like, yeah, same. God, there's so <laughs> much work. Like, I could do this at home. I could just, like, I could just crank this out. And now, like, why do I have to do so many takes? And I... Was he, like, directing you, like, like try again? Yep. Give yeah. me another one, but but, like... You know, that's kind of his talent. Give me an ascend at the end or, or yeah, give me yeah. a descend at the end. And, and I was like getting exhausted. It was hard to maintain energy. And then the results are it. like the results speak for themselves. Like, well, me as a fan of your work, I've kind of I noticed this big jump between like when you did Manslaughterer mm-hmm. and the record before that, like that was like a big, big jump and a big shift in quality. I felt like uh, that that is <laughs> that that transition between those two records is when I first built my own vocal isolation booth. And you started to do it yourself. Yeah. I, the what vocals, was the record before again? Uh, Mark of the Beast. Right. The vocals on that are half recorded in studio and half recorded like with some little like kind of crappy USB mic that I had that I was recording just in an open room and recording really self-consciously because I was nervous about my next door neighbors hearing me. So my, all of my delivery is really gated because I'd be like, I mean, I, I, I feel this song, but like, it's not like being on stage where I have this unbridled energy. It's like, I worry that my neighbors are going to hear me. Now I'm self-conscious because I probably sound stupid. Do you think they did? They might've, yeah. but, um, so building the booth cares, was right? both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, at the time I did, but I've, I've learned to not. Um, but yeah, so, so being able to record at home was both an, a, 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 a way to, be able to record with, um, by myself so that I could have control over editing and also, um, you know, sort of no distractions and I could go at everything as hard, give it the kind of energy that I felt the songs deserved without being self-conscious. And that's kind of like, I remember I learned that kind of early on that working with different people versus just being by yourself. If you can capture your audio and like get a best performance and be on your own time, you really get the best results. Like, like, or having like someone who you trust, who's, who's manning this, manning the recording, but it's just doing the technical side. And then you're able to like facilitate the creative side yourself. Yeah. You know, because it's like, <clears throat> I remember for me, like, especially like mid era, I would be very specific about the grammar. I'd be like, oh, that, I'd say a line. I'd be like, oh, I, I use slang there. I, or I use the wrong pronoun. Or, and then producers would get mad. I'd be like, let me, let me, let me punch that because I want to say his or, or them or mm-hmm. were instead of was. And, like, I, and they were like, no, it's good. It's good. And they'd, we'd get in these heated grammar fights. And yeah, and, yeah I don't know. That's not worth the stress because it's like art to me is this constant self-discovery and self-sustaining thing. And, it seems like that is that is after all these years, it's what I finally appreciate and love about hip hop and, and what I've come to like appreciate with what's great about nerdcore, you know? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, the thing. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Um, and I feel the thing that keeps me making music now is, and the reason why I keep doing it is because I have learned like, it's great to make music for an audience and it's great to have an audience appreciate it. But 
there's also, I, there's something really cathartic and, uh, therapeutic that I've gotten from just the process of, of making songs and telling a story and getting it out there and, and playing it for an audience and playing it for an yeah. audience. And, and, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, I don't do everything so much explicitly for an audience anymore. I mean, they're always in mind. Um, but I won't put the energy into recording anything. Um, unless I believe in it now. I, I won't, awesome, I won't man. do something just like, like kind of going back and saying, like I wrote some kind of pandery songs. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to write a song just because I'm like, this is the kind of thing that my audience would like to hear. Yeah. I will release a thing that they might not want to hear if I like believe in it. And I'm like, this song is important for me to put out. And that song, or, or likewise, I'll, if I spend a bunch of energy on a song that I think is going to be, if I spend weeks working on a song and at the end, I'm not happy with it. I'm not going to release it just because, well, I got to pad out this record. And also because I already put all this work into it. I got to get something out of it. Sometimes I'll be like, it just didn't work. That's great. I, I learned lessons from the experience, but I don't, I don't have to send, I don't have to show my work all the time. I don't have to like, you know, like a math problem. I don't have to, you don't have to, they don't all have to see it just because it's not, I don't have to release it just because I did it. I, I, my friend Sean, who's a great director, who's done a lot of my videos, taught me, told me this expression is called kill your babies. It's like sometimes like you have to edit the stuff out and not release stuff that you really thought was good. But if it's just not perfect. And I think that's when like being in 2018, we're in this culture where it's all about content creation, constantly putting stuff out. And like you and I are kind of like old school dudes who are like, we want to craft these beautiful records that people will discover and hit in a certain moment and like. But it's that's the culture shifted, and I think it's like this weird balance. Huh? It's it's a, a bunch of people in the same small pool of artists that are all competing for the same short attention span. And yeah. you just like the the message that we keep being told is like you gotta stay connected to them, or they're gonna lose interest, or they're gonna forget about you. Like, it, well, it, then let them. Yeah, uh, like, right, right. And and and, the, and I think like with the nerdcore stuff, it's those are the pe kind people who stuck around who cared enough, right? Yeah. The completest, the collectors, like you have so many graphic novels here. I'm looking at your awesome media collection. It's like to have this, be part of this canon is, is really an incredible privilege, you know, yeah. even if it's, even if it's like hit or miss, you know, mm -hmm. I think you have, what's the, on, on sick passenger, you have this skit where the, the therapist asks you why you create. And what is the, what is the thing you say? Oh my gosh. That struck me. It's very funny. I don't even, you're like, yeah. I don't actually remember. But you remember now. this moment, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That I, that I, the darker side of like, not for the art, but for like everything that comes from it, attention, gratification. Oh, right. What do you get from doing it? Yeah. Like, yeah. I get all of these, these things that aren't, are well, yeah. All of these kind of like validating, like reinforcements that are ex external to the art. Ex yeah. They, they aren't about the art that, that, that it makes it more of like, it, it kind of questions the motive because it looks like, is this a cause and effect thing? Like, are you putting out songs because you want people to like you or, or are you rewarding the people that like you by giving them songs that you give a shit about? And I think the, the latter is, is, is the way to be sustainable. Yeah. I think something else, like I just wanted to touch on that. I love about your work and I love about your social media presence is that you're very quick to call people out for not being like kind or conscious or, there's a lot of in the nerd culture and especially with like the edgy meme stuff. And like, there's a lot of like problematic stuff, especially in being 
white artists in a, in a genre that's was created by people of color in the in New York in the seventies. And like, you're always quick to make people look at themselves when they're being ugly. <laughs> I love that about you. I felt like I had kind of a responsibility after a while. Well, I, I think it was something about like I crossed a point where when I was constantly like, I have to keep putting out uh, content quickly and I have to, I have to constantly, you know, make my audience happy and I have to keep them close and, and I have to like kind of let them get away with stuff because it's important to them. I, I kind of got to a, a, a some point, I don't even remember when it was, when I was like, but why do I have to do that? I, I yeah. don't, I don't need to cater to fans who are just shamelessly hurtful about things at time. And I feel if I have some, if I've carved out some little spot for myself and, and I've managed to amass some small modicum of influence upon this, the handful of, of fans in this subgenre, then I'm going to use that modicum of influence for some kind of good. And at least, at least try to give teachable moments when possible. So the dark Lord image is a ruse. You actually are bringing light and, and, and bringing out the best in people. Oh, you're ruining my cover. <laughs> the secret is out, man. <laughs> I love your consent song. Like that is always a highlight of the set. Uh, thank, thank you. That's a, that was an important one for me to write. And yeah. I, then I tried to write a couple of times and it never came out quite right. And then I waited until I got it right. And then I was like, now that's a song I can release. And I thought it was important because, you know, conversations about, uh, consent and sexual assault and, 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 all of those things uh, had, uh, I, I felt like had up until that point been kind of treated by the nerd community as a problem outside, as a problem like, well, yeah, you know, this is bros are like this and, uh, you know, crappy guys are out there doing this. And I, you know, kind of wanted to put them all on my knee and be like, you guys know your nerd conventions are kind of littered with reports of sexual assault mm. all the time. And you got to kind of look at yourselves too. And you got to like not, yeah, everyone has a friend who has a, a yep. who tries to joke yep. about You're it. You're not immune to this. You are, yeah. in fact, the, the thought, the sort of mentality that you feel that this is an, uh, a problem that goes beyond your circle is an attitude that only perpetuates that kind of violence within your circle. And it enables it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I think one of the great things about Nerdcore in the past five years is how it's the demographics have shifted yeah and with like the mpc and like all these new young artists it really gives me inspiration it makes me happy to see these great people who are uh, just it's become more of an eclectic mix of people doing it yeah and i think like i don't know i think you're right i think you're really right there's this moral imperative that like as people have been doing it for a while hopefully the audience that's around will still love what we're doing. And if not, it's more important to say like real stuff to people and not be turned off by not try, not be afraid of, of turning people off by saying stuff they don't want to hear. Because if you can sprinkle it with comedy or like a great beat or something and put, put this moral truth out there, that's like, that's the, that's the external thing to all of this. And I feel like it all has a bigger, better purpose. Don't I you? It precisely. That's, a, yeah. I mean, I couldn't have said that better. I'm, I'm glad I got time with you today. I'm glad too. Thank I'm you, glad man. you, I'm glad you, you, uh, made the trek over here to hang out with me and the weird cats. What's in our tour? Like, I just want to say last year, the tour you and I did with mega ran in front a lot. That was like such an awesome run. That tour it? was so much fun. Thanks it to was, everyone who came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. That was, that was such a great tour. Every show was amazing. Yeah. And it was, it was, the shows were great. The crowds were great. Uh, the venues were great. Um, it was especially great to have 
to spend that much time on the road with the three of you because we've all we are now members of the the older crowd. Like we've all been around in this scene for a long time. We're grandparents now. We're yeah, <laughs> but, but we we made it beyond you know getting bored with the novelty of ourselves and have turned it into something better. And I hope that like if 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 you all have time, I think it would be fun to do something like that again. Uh, yeah, we, I think we've still got some shirts left, so we got to sell that merch. Yeah, <laughs> the tour shirts, right? I would, I would, yeah, I would do that tour again in a heartbeat. Cool. Um, we hit the East Coast, and there's the country so big. So if any of you are listening in the Midwest or West Coast, I yeah. don't know. I think it, we we got to talk to front a lot and Raheem, but yeah, it was just like it was it was a special time, and and I was just like so happy that. I was just so happy that all we had to do was announce the tour, tweet about it. It's like this whole thing in the music industry, so much you have to spend so much money and hire people and do all this yeah. extra stuff. And it was just the music and friendship and seeing all these fans new and, and the new fans who'd never seen us. Like yeah. that was tight as heck. Yeah. They really did. Uh, the, like the audience themselves and just, and us teaming up with one another did the work the work of 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 so many publicists yeah. alone no like, publicists were yeah. hired we did it but it just the 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 fans were really excited on that trip so i'm imagine there's probably some young people listening who are or young old or anyone who are like have this idea like one day they might want to make music or do a creative project and they're like waiting for the right moment or they're working on something and you're someone who's manifested this incredible <laughs> discography and toured so much around and like played for so many people. What advice might you have? And I wanted to just end with this. Uh, I'll tell you the same thing that, uh, that I've told, especially people who are, who've been fans of nerdcore and they want to get into it. I've, um, so many in-person conversations and, and so many emails over there and you've got them too, where somebody writes to you and they say, uh, I am an aspiring nerdcore artist. Can you give me any advice? And I always give them the same two pieces of advice. It's always the same. The first one is stop listening to nerdcore hip hop. Uh, you can listen to it and be influenced by it, but stop making that your, prim your, your primary influence. Start listening to hip hop. Listen to the classics. Listen to the people who inspired us. Don't just listen to us because then you're going to be getting... I don't know, like a, uh, like a cover of a cover of sorts, like, like a clone of a clone. If you're just, if you're just inspired by what we do, but you don't know where it came from, then it's, you're going to kind of telephone game what's good about hip hop and possibly a bad result. So go into your history, listen to great hip hop, you listen to nerdcore too, but, but really focus on, on the masters of it. And so what, if you could recommend three records, that's to distill it. What three oh would you tell? Gosh, what a question! <laughs> uh, um, enter the thirty-six chambers. Let's listen to the Elmatic, of course. Um, and I don't know. Listen to everything Tribe Called Quest ever released. Yeah, I, there's too many. There's too many. Like to say, like if I had to pick three, listen to uh, Three Feet High and Rising, License to Ill. Um, Check your head. There's, yeah, there's, 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 there's Raising a lot hell. of them, but, but yeah, go, go get the good stuff. Cool. Okay. So the second part yeah, of that sorry. Thing. So the first one is stop just listening to nerdcore and, and, and don't ever say that thing. Like, I don't like hip hop, but I like what you do. Then don't make hip hop because you're going to, you're going to make something that's going to be like a bad version of what I do. And what I do is just a bad version of hip hop. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is 
once you figure out a, a recording program that you can use or the, the type of gear that you're going to get to record and you start learning the kind of basics of multi-track recording with whatever, even if you start with GarageBand, that's fine. It works. Get any software that you can. Um, I would say go and record songs. Start like learning how to record songs. And don't release any of them until you've recorded 20. Mm. And start with your 21st song. Mm. <laughs> because I think that there has been... Um, I think there have been too many people that are like, I have now, I'm interested by this community that I found online and everybody can like makes their music on their own. You can all do it at home now. But, and, and because social media has made it like almost compulsive for us to share everything at every moment all the time that I see a lot of people tagging me in posts when they like just got their first USB mic and just learned GarageBand and they recorded their first song and they put it out there to share and like, don't do that. You have to like, if you were an athlete, you wouldn't work out once and then you jump into Jordan. the game. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, yeah. Go out there and work a lot and make a bunch of mistakes and wait until you have created a bunch of songs and then start putting them out. That's very good advice. And I think something I, I've noticed you've done differently is that you've done a lot of videos over the years. Since the beginning, you were doing these cool, interesting videos. Yeah. Not, uh, not as many as I think I would like. I've done a few. I'd like to. I'd like to do some more videos, but you've I, done a. But you like I've done thirteen years of worth, huh? Yeah, yeah. I've got a few things out there. Yeah. I'd like to do more video stuff, but it's always like so time consuming and expensive, and I have to leave my house. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Bye. Bye.
can't you? That's the reckoning the angels have been screaming at you. The signs you haven't seen have shown us that it started. Your kind has brought depravity, the locusts in our garden. Hardened skeptics will say I'm insane and call us a cult. Their own homes in disarray, they'll scoff and insult. But we will exult, for these are tests we must face. I've lost brothers and sons, more than once I've lost faith. But God spoke to me, a nobody from nowhere with nothing. He taketh the child, warned us that sinners are hunting. That they will come for our weapons, that they will come with a rope. That they will come for our freedom, but they will never take hope. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. A cleansing by fire, entire world torn asunder. Under sirens and wolves and Baptists called in for curfew. We'll be reborn into virtue. It's like chastity, cherish, statements will be reiterated as the ground begins shaking. That God will not let them take me. We won't listen to their screaming. And sky will crash in the ocean. For all of this, I didn't ask, I was chosen. How sweet the sound of my father's voice Made the move up north to Montana by choice An English professor with tenure denied Because I taught Huck Finn against a stark racial divide When a student complained, I was fired for a quote Taking out of context, faculty took a vote And I was out on the street with a worthless degree That's when I read about this place of unity and peace Where I could finally see bliss existing past the veil I left a world of phonies holding confidence at sale How could I be a teacher when the past had been rewritten? That's when I saw a statue in the moonlight I was smitten Because what if he's right? Doesn't that make you think? Everyone's a little crazy and the world's on the brink Of destruction and flames But Gatsby's glad that I'm here Eden's gate opened up Healing me and my fears no more More and when it's just us left, you'll know that I wasn't faking. Cause God will not even take me. We won't listen to your begging. You your chance to stand and fight. Well, once we're seven seals, the last of them's broken. For all of this, I didn't ask, I was chosen. You your days in darkness.